Our scripture today is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reasons by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head for whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're working our way through the book of Colossians. The title of this series is Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And we're going to talk about this weekend, Beware of Counterfeit Christianity. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. Let me begin with a story here. Get us started. A man is being tailgated by a woman who is in a hurry. This sounds good, doesn't it? Okay. He comes to an intersection, and when the light turns yellow, everybody knows what you do when the light turns yellow. What do you do? That's what I was afraid of. Some of you are speeding up. Well, he puts on his brakes. He hits the brakes. The woman behind him goes ballistic. She honks her horn at him. She yells her frustration in no uncertain terms. She rants and gestures. While she is in mid-rant, someone taps on her window. She looks up and sees a policeman. He invites her out of her car, takes her to the station where she is searched and fingerprinted and put in a cell. After a couple hours, she is released. And the arresting officer gives her personal effects, saying, I'm very sorry for the mistake, ma'am. I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, using bad gestures and bad language. I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Choose Life license plate holder, the Follow Me to Sunday School window sign, and the Christian fish emblem on your trunk, and I naturally assumed you had stolen the car. Okay, we're going to talk about the gospel gap. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, and so what is the gospel gap? Take a look at your sermon notes there. Gospel gap is the disparity between, between what I believe and how I behave. <laughs> you can say all day long you believe in Jesus, but oftentimes our behavior betrays us in so many different ways. The gospel gap is the inconsistency between my spirituality and my reality. It is the gap between the fact that my past sins are forgiven, my future in heaven is secure, but how in the world, how in the world does the gospel help me in the here and now of my everyday life? That's where the difficulty comes in. 
So we've got to learn how to narrow that gap. I mean, it just makes sense. It just absolutely makes sense that if, if the God who is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful promises to us that he will never leave us or forsake us, why would we ever be anxious, worried, or stressed out? It's because of a gospel gap. We say that we believe that, but the reality of it in our behavior and how we're doing life is, conveys something totally different from that. I mean, I mean, think about this. If my life is not more and more characterized by love, joy, peace, regardless of the circumstances, then I've got a gospel gap problem. I, I should be growing in, in my love and joy and peace in all circumstances. If, if I'm not increasing in my love for God and others as I am experiencing more and more of his love for me, I've got a gospel gap problem. So how do we narrow the gap? What does that look like? Well, this is where we've been in a study so far. So chapter 1 has talked about Christ's preeminence declared. It laid a good solid foundation for our faith. And when we talk about preeminence, we're talking about his sufficiency, his supremacy, his satisfaction, unlike anything else in this world. And so that was declared, chapter 1. Chapter 2, it's defended because Paul is afraid that somehow we'll be led astray. And we talked a couple weeks ago about the philosophies of our world. Last week it was about legalism. Now we talk about counterfeit Christianity. These things will become substitutes for an authentic real relationship with Christ, and that's what he's fearful of, and, and so what we're going to look at here, uh, and so Christ's sufficiency or, or Christ's preeminence defended, chapter 2, and then chapters 3 and 4, we'll head into next week, is Christ's preeminence displayed. How does that look like in our everyday life? So this is kind of really pivotal here this weekend. It kind of heads into the next next uh, all the way into Easter when we talk about how Christ's preeminence is displayed in our lives. We'll get real practical there. But how does he bring change? How do we narrow the gap, this gospel gap? So here's the three questions we're looking at. I believe this, this text helps us to answer. How we try to fill the gap. So he's giving us ways that we try to fill the gap. Why none of these work? And then how to narrow the gap. That's, that's the three questions we're looking at. So let's take that first question, how we try to fill the gap. That's verse 16. And we're going back to part of our text from last week. So we won't spend a lot of time on this. But we do need to mention this because this is one of the ways that we try to fill the gap. So therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. Let no one pass judgment on you. Don't feel condemned or obligated because they throw a, a, a list of rules for you to keep, for you to achieve your salvation with Christ is what he's really saying. And so the first fill in the blank on your notes is of how we try to fill the gap is legalism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. We spent all last weekend talking about legalism. But basically, legalism is obey these rules and God will accept and bless you. But that's, we all know that. If you, if you hang out here at Desert Breeze, uh, the gospel is not uh, get your act together, obey these rules, and then God will accept and bless you. No, listen to me. The gospel says you are accepted and blessed in Christ Jesus, therefore you're going to want to obey. Your obedience co- comes out of your response to his amazing love in your life. I'm not going to say any more about that, but that becomes a substitute oftentimes for having a, a relationship with Christ, legalism. Look at verse 18. Now, he gives us a whole list of things and how we try to fill the gap. 
narrow the gap between our beliefs and our behavior. He says, let no one, this is verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. He used the word disqualify. It means to decide as an umpire against someone. So, so don't let people press all of these things on you that you have to have these things in your life somehow to have this relationship with Christ is what he's saying. Let's go through this list. The next fill in the blank on your notes is asceticism. So how do we fill the gap? Legalism, asceticism. Asceticism is severe discipline, self-discipline, and avoidance of all indulgence. Fasting would be one of those. Now, spiritual disciplines are an important part of, of spiritual growth as long as you're doing them for the right reason. But they're never to be an end in themselves. And this is what he's talking about here, where we make this the end in itself rather than a means to an end. It, it, spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. And, and the end would be increasing our capacity to experience more of God in our life. We don't just fast and pray just to check it off our list. And that's the point that he's making here, this idea of asceticism. The next one would be mysticism. It's on your notes there. It says this would be the pursuit of an experience over the pursuit of Christ. And that's based on verse 18 where he says, worship of angels. I mean, I, I, there's certainly some theology when it comes to angels. When you study through Scripture, there's ministry angels, there's messenger angels, and then there's military angels. And yet we're not to be preoccupied with angels. The Bible even tells us in Psalm 91, angels are watching over us. But you don't interact with angels. You don't seek angels. That would be wrong. That's the point that he's making. This is this kind of this mysticism. And then he goes on. He says, going on in detail about visions. Nothing wrong with visions. Acts chapter 2 talks about that we'll have visions. The problem is, is that we make that our preoccupation. And, and, and as he's saying here, going on in detail about visions, that's, that becomes more important than the pursuit of Christ. And so oftentimes, those that pursue mysticism, these are people who don't typically stay with one church long because they are consumers of an experience rather than committed members of a local church family. And I, I saw this back in the 80s and 90s a lot, and it, it does happen even today, where people will go from one church experience to the next looking for, you know, the, the next big thing that's happening within a church. Or, or something, and I've seen people tend to do that. They're seeking this kind of mysticism, this, this experience over the pursuit of Christ. And um, between these experiences, these people will tend to fall flat spiritually into despondency and discouragement. If you're just seeking mysticism in these experiences, it's not going to go well for you. You need to be seeking Christ. That can be a substitute for our seeking of Christ. The next one we could add to that is emotionalism. This is pursuing feelings as an end in, in themselves. Kind of goes along with that. Worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. So emotionalism. Now, listen to me. We are not against emotions. In fact, some of you could be a little bit more emotional in your worship experience. A little constructive criticism here. Okay. Some of you could be a little bit more you know, more excited and happy, but, but it's evident that you're probably not really thinking deep thoughts about God at this time, so I'm not going to just get you to be, you know, uh, emotionalism is just stirring up emotions as an end in themselves. I really believe that if you're thinking deeply about the things of God, I'm telling you, it will stir you emotionally. 
See, emotionalism, we are not against emotions, but emotionalism. John 4, 24, it says we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. Pondering the greatness and the goodness of God, which is truth, should stir deep emotions for God, which is spirit. That's the inner essence of worship. I really believe that some of you, not all of you, but many of you are really, ex- I see that you're having an encounter with Christ. You're not just going through the motions. You're not substituting that time just to maybe uh, work on your grocery list or anything like that, or maybe in your mind you're somewhere else. Man, if you would focus in on what these songs are telling us about God and begin to think deeply about that, I'm telling you, as you ascribe ultimate worth and value to God, it will engage you and energize your whole being, and it will make a difference. If you're thinking deep thoughts about God, it should stir you emotionally and move you and change your behavior. See, that's the inner essence of worship. So, okay, I didn't mean to preach to you there, but I just wanted you to understand, I'm not against emotions. Woo, we should be excited about God, but we're, we're not so fond of emotionalism. We're just, we're just not going to crank you up. We don't do that here. But man, let's think some thoughts about God. Let's let him move on us and, and stir us, and that's really the inner essence of worship. We don't feel our way into our beliefs. We believe our way into feelings. If you're not feeling so good, start thinking some good thoughts about God. Dive into his word. Meditate on his word in his scripture. It will stir you. It will move you. And so, okay, enough there. Biblicism is the next one. So how we try to fill the gap. Legalism, asceticism, mysticism, emotionalism, biblicism. This is intellectualism. This is to know a lot about God and not know God. This is all information without intimacy. See, communion, dependency, and worship of Christ has been replaced with a, with a drive to master the content of scriptures. And so these are theological experts who are unable to live by the grace that they can define with technical precision. And in fact, I don't believe that you've really mastered the word until the, ma- until the word is beginning to master you. So I don't, I don't care how much information you know about God or morality or what the Bible says. If it's not mastering your life, then you haven't mastered it. See, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And I can always tell when people are really growing in their intimacy with God, as they get to know God and they're studying God's word and they're growing in intimacy with him, oh my goodness, their capacity of love for God and others grows. I can see that. But people that just have a bunch of information about God, they're a pain in the neck to be around, to be quite honest with you. They're know-it-alls. They're always trying to correct your theology, which I, we all could use some correction to our theology. But, like, get over yourself. Help me to see Christ. That's, that's the point of it. He says in verse 18, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. You're just studying to feed your ego. Not to feed your spirit so you can know the God of the galaxies, to help others to know him too. I mean, when you encounter God, listen to me, you're going to be undone. You get to know the God of the Bible, you're undone. And you want him more than anything, you want everybody else to know him too. That's all I'm saying. Don't fall prey to biblicism, intellectualism. Your theology should lead to doxology, and if it doesn't, you got dead orthodoxy. Okay, enough said. Here we go, verse 20. Man, this guy's getting down on us here this morning. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I just want you to have the real deal. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to experience him. There's nothing better. 
Nothing better than knowing him. I don't want any of us to fall prey to any of these. These are all counterfeit Christianity that keep us from knowing him. Okay, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Formalism is the next fill in the blank. Formalism. A lot of church activities with very little heart change. Isaiah 1, the prophet Isaiah is getting down on the Israelites because they're saying, you guys are just going through the motions without any emotion. It's all form, no substance. You're just going, checking the box. You guys don't know God. Jesus does the same thing with the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23 through 28. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're just showing up to church. Yep, did that. Boom. Talked to a few people. I'll put another check there. Put money in the box. Whoop. I'll put a check there. No, did you encounter God? Do you know him? Is your heart stirred by the living God? Is he transforming your life? That's, that's the more important question. Otherwise, it's formalism. See, this formalism can give you a false sense of security, blinding you to the seriousness of your spiritual condition and your desperate need for God's grace to rescue you. See, this could also be churches or people that are more about consumeristic values and pragmatic methodology. So you can go to churches these days, these days that will teach you kind of self-help how-to. They focus on what you need to do as opposed to helping you to behold the glory of God. So I could teach you a bunch of life skills. I could teach you how to have good communication skills, conflict resolution skills, compatibility skills as it relates to all your relationships, your friendships, your marriage. I can teach you skills in parenting too, but it won't do you a bit of good unless your heart is not transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you haven't done, you haven't dealt with what's fundamentally wrong with all of us, our self-centeredness. You're just going to use all of that for your own self-centeredness. Our hearts have to be transformed. We need to get rid of the self-centeredness, and only the gospel can transform our self-centeredness. Formalism doesn't do that, and the self-help and how-to doesn't do that. We need to learn to behold the glory of Christ, to see what he's done for us, and have it ravish our hearts. So you can read the Bible, pray, go to church, never encounter God or be transformed by him. Next one is activism, activism. I've added a few more to his list, obviously, because I think just looking at our culture today and looking what I've seen people fall prey to, this is a defense of what is right versus a joyful pursuit of Christ. So standing up against human trafficking, abortion, homelessness, crime, unconstitutional politics is all important, but it can become a substitute for personal intimate relationship with Christ and the proclamation and demonstration of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. It can become a substitute. Had a gal that was attending Desert Breeze a number of years ago, and uh, she was rallying people to go out and feed the homeless. She was going downtown and clothing and feeding the homeless, and that's good. That's, I, I applaud that. That's fantastic. You know, we all need to be, you know, involved in doing things in the community. That's one of many things that needs to be done in the community as we reach out and help people out. But she was so 
dead set on this that she began to preach to everybody else almost religiously that if you weren't doing this, she would even question your salvation. And she was so religiously, very pharisaical about it, dogging on everybody in the church if they weren't doing that, like that was the only ministry that really mattered. And I started asking one of the ministry leaders, I said, I don't know that she's even a Christian. And sure enough, she wasn't even really truly a follower of Jesus Christ. Shortly thereafter, she chased after some sort of Eastern mysticism crazy stuff. And I realized, man, her heart had not even been really transformed. And she was out, out marching and helping people out. It was really a defense of what is right as opposed to a joyful pursuit of Christ. We need to stand up for what is right, but don't let that be a substitute for your pursuit of Christ. You need to pursue Christ first and foremost, and everything else should come out of that. And then you're not going to be dogging on everybody like uh, you're a religious fanatic. You're going to be patient and kind and loving and gracious and, and trying to entice and encourage people to be involved and let that, their, their encounter with Christ overflow their lives. And what happens oftentimes with activism, and I, I know people that are very very much involved in activism, and, and you would question sometimes, do you, do you even know Jesus? Sounds crazy, but, but that can become a substitute for really knowing Christ. And this happens because people think that the evil outside of them is greater than the evil inside of them. And then there's psychologyism. Psychologyism. <laughs> you never heard that one before, did you? Okay, so seeing Christ more as a therapist than a savior. I need healing more than redemption is what that one says. Now listen to me. Anytime you think that the sins that have been committed against you are greater than the sins that you have committed against God, that will cause you to seek Christ as a therapist rather than your savior. I'm not minimizing the sins that have been committed against you. Some of you have been devastated by the wounds that people have inflicted upon you. I understand that. But the solution to that is redemption. The solution is that to, to seek godliness, and then he will heal you. Not so much to seek your healing as God is a therapist, but seek godliness and in that process, he will heal you. See, the problem is, is that oftentimes we think that the sins that have been committed against us are greater than the sins that we've committed against a holy, righteous God. And I'm telling you, when you understand that your sins that you have committed against a holy, righteous God are worse than any sins that will ever be committed to you, when you understand that and you receive his forgiveness of you, this is what I've, I've learned in my own life, is that for Forgiven people are forgiving people. So when I understand what I've done against a holy, righteous God, he forgives me, and then, then only then am I able to forgive others that have hurt me and continue to hurt me. Then I can, I'm, I'm healed and I'm from that woundedness. But Christianity becomes more of a pursuit of healing rather than a pursuit of godliness when, we're, when we have this psychologyism going on in our, in our heart. Now, let me ask you this. Is God more concerned in relieving our suffering or revealing our sin? Is he, yeah, he's more, he wants to reveal our sin, so he uses our suffering to reveal our sin. 
So your suffering is, is meant to draw you to him, to find redemption and healing and godliness in him. Suffering won't destroy our lives. Sin will destroy our lives. Sin will put us in hell, and it will totally destroy our lives. Our suffering, we can get through suffering, no matter how bad it is. But we can't get through our sin. Only he can set us free from that, but then he can heal us of our suffering too. Okay, here's the last one on this list. We could give you a lot more. Here's the last one. This is all I knew how to define this one. We'll call it favoritism. Party spirit. Party spirit. We fall in love with the messenger more than the message. We fall in love with the style more than the substance. Hey, I just want you to know, I go to the cool church in the valley. And that celebrity pastor over there, whoo, yeah, we're, we rally around him. And that, that's crazy. That's insane that you're, you identify more with your church or the building or the people or what rather than Christ. You, what in the world? You're falling in love with the messenger rather than the message. You know that's messed up, don't you? But I see that happen all the time in people's lives. My wife, uh, when I first met my wife, I knew her for about a year. We decided we were going to get married. She moved back to Texas, Houston, Texas, with her family. And while she was there, this was during the time before, uh, before the Internet. You guys remember that time? Okay, before the Internet. This is before cell phones, before everybody in the world had a cell phone. All we had were landlines. You guys remember what landlines are? Anybody here still have a landline? Okay, just like two or three people in here. Okay, there's a few. Okay, why do you, you don't even need a leave, uh, you don't need a landline if you got a cell phone. Okay, and so you could save some money that way. Anyway, that's what we did, and so we don't have a landline. But that, back then, the landlines, it, long distance calls cost you a fortune. You guys remember those days? Oh my goodness. And so she lived in Houston, Texas. Long distance calls were cost a fortune, so no email, so we did snail mail. Do you guys remember how to write letters? So we wrote, we wrote letters. I wrote her love letters. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote her love letters. And the craziest thing happened. I'm sending her all these love letters, and she falls in love with the mailman. That was the weirdest thing in the world. No, she didn't do that. That would be stupid. Guess what? When we do that with leaders and churches and we identify with these organizations, we're doing the same thing. We're falling in love, like I said here. We're falling in love with the messenger more than the message. The mailman was just the messenger, just bringing the letters. I'm the messenger. I'm just bringing you the letters. Here's here's what happens. This kind of favoritism creates quarreling and divisions and makes the church look ridiculous and hinders our witness of Christ. This kind of favoritism. And you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's the problem. The reason why people do that. This party spirit. It's because we have this inability to feed ourselves. If you're coming to me week in and week out for me to pump you up, and get you on track, I feel bad for you. No, seriously. I'm not here to pump you up. I'm not here to stir you and provoke you and get get you rolling. You should be coming in here already that way. 
because you've been feeding and ministering to yourself throughout the week, and you're feeding others. That would show to me that you've got maturity. But, if, I mean, if you're dependent on any one person or group of people or anybody to get you pumped up so you can face life, oh, my goodness, maybe you're just an immature Christian and you've been only walking with the Lord for a little while. I got it. But at some point, I'm telling you, you've got to start feeding yourself. That's why I put Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. It is idolatry. Anytime you look to any person, group of people, or church as your ultimate identity rather than Christ. We're here to help you to know Christ, walk with Christ, enjoy Christ, follow Christ, feed on Christ. you got to be able to feed yourself. That's what we're all about. And so, okay, enough, enough right there. That's enough. We could keep going on with this list. These are all substitutes, and this is how we try to narrow the gap. But let's talk about why none of these work. Look at verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are, of, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you hear what he's saying there? They don't transform your life. <laughs> they, they don't, they're not going to change you. They give the appearance of Christianity, but don't transform your heart. They all have their roots in truth, but they're incomplete. Counterfeit Christianity is a lifestyle that focuses on externals more than internals. And it's so easy to do. We focus on externals as opposed to internals. Internals is hard. It's really difficult. I don't like seeing a lot of the things that I see in myself. And it's hard to have to work through that stuff. So why none of these work? It's because, here's your next fill in the blank, it's because we underestimate the presence of sin in our lives. We underestimate the presence of sin in our lives. Now, you all know we've got three enemies. What are our three enemies? Anybody help me out? Okay, flesh, self, society. I, I got the three S's, okay, it's easy to remember, okay. Society, the values of society, values of this world, another way you could call it the world. Satan, we've got an adversary, demonic, okay? And then we've got self, our own sinful nature. Here's one of our biggest problems. We think that the evil outside of us, Satan and society, is greater than the evil inside of us. Sinful self, sinful nature. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Here's our problem, is that we tend to think that our problem is outside of us rather than inside of us. Listen to me. Everybody listen. Your biggest problem is you. Thank you very much, Pastor Ray. Welcome to Desert Breeze. Your biggest problem is you. It's not your moody spouse, your bratty teenagers, your lazy coworkers. It's not your circumstances or people or things in your life. It's your response to those things. It's your own sinful nature. It's your own sinful nature. And so we underestimate the presence of sin in our lives. Society and Satan has no power over you except the power you give to them. He's come to set you free from those things. But our biggest problem is within, our, within ourselves, within our own hearts, our struggle with sin. It goes all the way back to the garden. Remember when, they, when Adam and Eve sinned against God? God came after them, said, where are you? Who told you you sinned? Who told you all these things? And so what did Adam do? What was the very first thing he did? 
the woman made me do it. He, I mean, he immediately, we, we, that's, we always put the blame outside of us. And then, of course, she kicked the can down the street also. She blamed the serpent. And so we, we, we blame, we blame shift. But man, when you can begin to take responsibility for your life, regardless of what you're facing in your life, oh my goodness, you're getting in touch with what God wants to do in your life. He wants to transform your heart and your life. Why none of these work is because we underestimate the presence of sin in our life. Here's the next one. We underutilize the power we have in Christ. We underutilize the power we have in Christ. I had someone share this with me this last week. I believe it 100%. If you think you've blown God's plan for your life, if you think you've blown God's plan for your life, you're not that powerful. I've wrecked my life. You're not that powerful. I don't care what you're up against. I don't care how messed messed up your life is. I don't care how much you've trashed your life. You're not that powerful. Listen to me. No sin or suffering, no sin or suffering is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace working in your life. That's his power. His power is greater than anything you'll ever face. So, So we underestimate the presence of sin in our lives, but we underutilize the power we have in Christ. Now, here's the power that sin has over us. The power of sin is the promise of happiness. That's the power that sin has over us. We are convinced that we'll be happy by pursuing sin, those things that are outside of what God has directed us in his word. I am trapped by sin as long as I am convinced it will make me happier. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise for us. So here's how it goes down. God's call to purity and holiness. If you think purity and holiness is boring, you are clueless and deceived and delusional because holiness and purity is is the best life you could live. There's not a greater, more fullness of life, more satisfying life than what you could live as you follow Christ and as you're fully devoted to him. God's call to purity and holiness is God's call to do what will bring you the greatest joy. So why none of these work? It's because we underestimate the presence of sin in our lives, we underutilize the power we have in Christ, and then we we underrate the process that life change happens. We underrate the process that life change takes. I'm sorry, that life change takes. Okay. I'm telling you, old habits die hard. You guys agree with that? And I'm telling you, I've been at this a long time, and he's still not done with me. I know that might shock some some of you. I still got a ways to go. I'm not where I used to be, but I'm not where I need to be. Can, Can you guys agree with that? Not as it relates to me, but as it relates to you, okay? Don't be pointing fingers at me, okay? I'm here talking to you. Okay, all of us, all of us still have a lot of work to do. You know, uh, my wife has been married to five different husbands. And they've all been me as God's continuing to transform me. But I have to tell you that I've been married to 10 different wives. (laughs) She's needed more work than I have, okay? She's not in here. I could talk about her. Actually, I've needed more work than she has. You wouldn't have wanted to know me in the early days in my marriage relationship. And God continues to transform our lives, continues to transform her life. And so we need that. But why 
Why are old habits, why do old habits die hard? They're called strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Uh, let's get scientific here. They're called neural pathways. <laughs> it's called second nature. It's called instinct. And so God did an amazing job in creating us, and it's part of our, when I took anatomy and physiology a number of years ago preparing for the paramedic program, is that I learned about the reticular activating system, part of the brain stem and down inside of us. Reticular activating system is that kind of automatic pilot. So that's why it, it, habits are good things, but they can also be bad things, depending on what, what kind of a habit it is. You can have bad habits and good habits. And so good habits, you know, would be like when you first learn how to drive, you're very conscientious, Remember how conscientious you were? And then all of a sudden, you, it kind of goes into this kind of instinct, second nature. You're able to drive down the road, and you're able to stop at the lights without really thinking much about that. Have you ever noticed that? Here's, a, here's an issue that my wife and I have been facing, is that when we pull out of our garage, I, I, I'll hit the garage door down, kind of hit the, make sure the garage go, door goes down, but then I forget because it's automatic pilot. I get down the street, and I'll ask her, I'll say, did I push the garage door down? Did I... Then I shut the garage door down, and she goes, I don't know. I said, well, you're supposed to help me remember that. <laughs> and so I'll circle the block. All my neighbors, my neighbors think I'm crazy because every time I pull out of the garage, I'm circling the block. <laughs> he goes out, shuts the garage door, circles the block. Oh, it's still down. <laughs> so it's supposed to help. Anybody relate to that? Okay, yeah, it's crazy. And so... <laughs> It's supposed to help me, but for some reason, if I don't think about it, I forget about it, and then I worry. If that garage door is open, somebody's going to break in and steal all of our stuff. So anyway, reticular activating system, it's, it's like second, you know, it should become like instinct, second nature. Uh, here's the issue with all of this second nature and instinct and these habits that we have. We can pretend when we're hanging out with folks we, we typically do, okay, just, just tell you. We do a lot of game playing and mask wearing, and that's just that's kind of part of our sinful nature. But when push comes to shove, who you really are will come out. That's, that's a fact. And, and that's why I've always liked what C.S. Lewis says. He says, surely what a man does when he has taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. That's why we always talk about the honeymoon, you know, when you're first married, you got the honeymoon season, and then it's all over after that, because the true you comes out. You can only pretend for a while, but the, the, that second nature, that, that instinct, that reticular activating system of, of habits that you have begins to manifest, and, and so this is the work of God. This is how He begins to transform us. It's called the golden triangle of spiritual formation. There's three sides to this golden triangle. One side would be spiritual disciplines, those things that we practice to develop better habits. Remember, spiritual disciplines are those things we do to increase our capacity to experience more of the presence of God in our life. So we got spiritual disciplines. We also have the work of the Holy Spirit working with us, but the third side of this triangle is what? Anybody? It's suffering, it's difficulties, it's pain because it's in the pain and difficulties our true instinct comes out and then God can help us to say, hey, wait, 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 That's, you're revealing some gospel gap here. You say that you believe in me and yet you're responding right now in a manner that would be inconsistent with someone who believes that God is for them and not against them. You guys tracking with me? Okay, so it's in the difficulties. So don't run from difficulties. 
but allow God to meet you in your difficulties through your spiritual disciplines, through the work of the Holy Spirit to begin to narrow that gospel gap. And that's part of that process that he wants to to help us with. That's why don't be discouraged in that. That's why Paul encourages us in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am so thankful that God continues to work on me. And I'm really thankful that he's still working on you too because we all need it. But also it tells us in Galatians 6, 9, do not grow weary in doing good for in due season you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. When you see that gospel gap being exposed, like, oh, I shouldn't respond like that. I shouldn't be feeling like that. It's just opportunity for God to meet you in that and begin to narrow that gap. Don't grow weary in well-doing. In due season, you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up. And so here's the bottom line. This is what you need to know before we transition to how to narrow the gap. And uh, this is kind of the groundwork for next weekend. You're going to have to come back next weekend because we'll get into the psychodynamics of a lot of this. But here's what I want you to understand. If you don't get anything else, get this. When humble admission of my daily need for Christ and humble pursuit of His grace is replaced with some sort of external Christian activity or experience, you've entered into counterfeit Christianity. Humble admission of my daily need for Christ and humble pursuit of His grace, when that is replaced with some sort of external Christian activity or experience, that's counterfeit Christianity. Here's what the enemy is up to. This is what you need to always come back to. I, I said this a few weeks ago. It's 2 Corinthians 11.3. This is what I'm, I'm, I'm like the Apostle Paul. He says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what the enemy's up to. You can do all of these things all you want to as far as he's concerned. Focus on all the externals. He doesn't want you focusing on the internals. Your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Sincere means authentic, real. Man, you have a real relationship with Christ. You're interacting with him every day. Sincere, pure. Pure means this. It means that you know what is competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ. So let me ask you this. Do you know those things in your life that would compete for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ? If you don't, you're out of touch with what God's doing in your life. They're called counterfeit gods, pseudo-saviors. And we'll talk more about it next week, but they're good things that oftentimes we elevate to ultimate things in our life. Marriages, you know, kids, jobs, things like that. And it's so subtle, we can easily do that. And, what that, and so we don't know that until we see the gospel gap. The gospel gap is a revelation of that we have done that, that there's something else that has my heart's deepest loyalties and affections other than Christ. Otherwise, there wouldn't be that gospel gap. There would be no gospel gap. If he truly has all my heart's deepest loyalties and affections, there would be no gospel gap. But I don't always live there. I'm not living in the reality of that. So let me ask you this. If you're a believer in Christ, you committed your life to Christ, you've been walking with him for a few years, what difference has Christ made in your life? 
I think most of us could say, oh my goodness, here's the difference that he's made in my life. Here's a more important question. What difference is Christ making in your life right now? You do have a relationship with Christ. You do understand that intimacy with him is is the most important part. So if you're walking in vital union and communion with him, if you're knowing him and walking with him and enjoying him and interacting with him and getting to know him and he's speaking to you and he's convicting you and he's comforting you, you could take me and say, hey, here's why I was struggling with this last week and this is how he helped me to get through this. Here's how he's meeting me in my difficulties. Here's where I'm seeing the gospel gap happen in my life. It's in my driving and I'm getting more calm in my driving. Or here, it's in my marriage and how I respond to my spouse. Or it's in with my kids or any number of things. But if, you don't, if you're not walking with him, you have counterfeit Christianity. You're substituting intimacy with him for some kind of formality or something. Something else. You're missing the most important part of the Christian life is knowing him, walking walking with him, enjoying him, having him speak to your heart. Okay. How to narrow the gap. Verse 19. Notice what he says here. And not holding fast to the head. So he's saying... We get caught up in all this counterfeit Christianity and therefore it keeps us from not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Right there, he's telling us exactly how to narrow the gap. It's beautiful. Here it is. Here's your next fill in the blank. How to narrow the gap. Keep holding fast to Christ. Keep holding fast to Christ. So here's how the gospel gap happens. Gospel gap happens when I'm looking to something or someone more than Christ as my ultimate meaning, hope, and happiness in life. That's what causes that gospel gap. I'm looking to something or someone else as, as my meaning, hope, and happiness more than Christ. Look at Jeremiah. You, know, you can't look there, but I'll just I'll tell you the verse here. Jeremiah 2.13. It's on your notes. You can look at this later. Jeremiah 2.13, this is what Jeremiah says to the people of Israel. He's also saying to us, he's kind of hitting the nail on the head, showing us what goes on in our hearts. He says, for my people have committed two evils. So he's given us really the essence of sin. Here's the two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed or dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns. You guys know what a cistern are? What cisterns are? They're a reservoir uh, for storage of water. So they've They've hewed out or dug out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. So here's what he's saying. This is what sin is. The essence of sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for broken cisterns. So it's the suicidal exchange of creator for something in creation. And that's what creates the gospel gap in our life because he goes on and he says in verse 19 of Jeremiah 2, your sin will punish and reprove you. Your sin will punish and reprove you. How does it do that? Here's how it does that. If you love anything more than you love Christ, it will control you when you seek it. It will enslave your life. It will disappoint you when you get it because it will never be enough. 
is your heart was made for God and Him alone. And it will devastate you when you lose it because you've built your life on something that's temporal. It will devastate you. Your sin will reprove you because you've loved something more than you loved Christ. That's why he starts off by saying, keep holding fast to Christ. Here's the next one, be nourished and knit together in a healthy church community. Gave you some good cross-references there. You can study on your own Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 10. But let me give you some key questions to help narrow the gap. Here's, Here's how you help yourself off of the ledge. You know what I'm saying? When I talk about help someone off the ledge, they're kind of at the end of themselves, at the end of the rope. They're like, oh, what am I going to do? This is how you kind of help yourself. This is how I've helped myself. Many times I've helped others. Here's some basic questions. This is, this is just good counseling right here. You start off, who is God? Who's God? One answer, God is love. What has he done? Well, he demonstrated his love for me while I was still a sinner. Christ died for me. Romans 5.8. So God is love. He gave his life for me to reconcile me to the Father. Who am I in light of God's work? Wow, I'm a child of God. I put my faith in Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm lavished with his love. That means his protection, his provision, his presence in my life. How should I live in light of who I am? Whoa! Yeah, that should make all the difference in the world. If I understood who I am in Christ, what he has for me, that should make all the difference in in my life. So think about what you're currently facing in your life. This is how you narrow the gap. You begin to think, wait a minute. Why am I so stressed? Why would I care about what these people think about me when the God of the galaxies loves me and adores me, gave his life for me? Why am I stressed out over the loss of this job? He's my provider. You you, you see what we're doing here? We're trying to work the gospel down deep into our heart to try to narrow that gospel gap from our beliefs down into our behavior and how we live that out. That's a very simple process. Just ask those questions. Work through that. Ask the Holy Spirit to make it alive to your life. It will change you. And here's the last one. This is what will happen. You'll grow with a growth from God. This will not be a mechanical growth. This will be an organic growth. And... uh, Mechanical growth was, is behavioral modification. The gospel is not behavioral modification, motivated by fear and pride. Now, we've talked a lot about this early on in the series. You have to go back in the series and listen to some of those. But it's not behavioral modification motivated by fear and pride. That's self-centeredness. That doesn't work. It doesn't last. But it's heart transformation motivated by God's love for us and, and our love for God. The key to life change is not the acts of the will, It's not behavioral modification. It's the loves of the heart. It's the loves of the heart. Listen to me. You are what you love. You worship what you love. By the way, you talk about what you love. But here's our problem. Our problem is disordered loves. We don't love God as much as we say we love him. We love a lot of other things over and above him, and that's what creates the gospel gap in our life. Now, we're going to talk more about that next week. You're going to have to come back. Because we're going to walk through, like I said, the psychodynamics of this and how this really works in our life so that we can work on getting that gospel gap narrowed. But Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Guard Guard what you love. What has your heart's deepest loyalties and affections? If it's not God's and it's something else, it'll cause problems in your life. It tells us in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. 
So if God really has all of your love, that will dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action, where your treasure is. If God is your treasure, that is where your heart will be also. Let me end with a, one quick story, and we'll be done. George Mueller, who immersed himself in the care of thousands of orphans in the 1800s, suffered from bad health and the weight of stressful responsibilities. One day he wrote in his journal, this morning I I greatly dishonored the Lord by irritability manifested toward my dear wife. uh, He said he fell on my knees before God, praising him for having given me such a wife. Mueller didn't excuse his irritability. He knew his unhappiness and bad mood had displeased God and hurt his wife. He owned up to it. So he's got gospel, gospel gap going on here. And so he didn't excuse, he didn't make excuses. He knew he displeased God. He hurt his wife. He owned up to it. George Mueller couldn't eliminate stress or occasional bad health. So what was his solution? Here's the solution. This is what I would encourage you to focus on more than anything. He wrote this in his journal. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished to find his deepest satisfaction in Christ. That's the most important thing you can do every day. You see, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, and when we are most satisfied in him, we are crucified to this world. Next weekend, living the new life, Colossians 3, 1 through 11. I'll be up front at the end of the service. If, you, if you're new here, I'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to join a family, commit your life to Jesus, We'd love to pray with you. That'd be really a good decision for you to make this weekend. If you have any questions about this uh, message, I'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, thank you for your extravagant love for us through the sacrifice of your Son on the cross, giving us eternal life. Let us not be led astray from our sincere and pure devotion to you. Help us to daily narrow the gospel gap in our lives as we hold fast to Jesus being nourished and knit together in a healthy church family so that we can grow with a growth that comes from you as we become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.